We turn now in the time of our service to the preaching of God's Word. If you would turn with me to Psalm 25, we will be hearing from God's Word this morning. Over the next several weeks, I'd like to look at a, a few psalms for us. That's uh, right, this is an appropriate book for, our church, for the church and our church to reflect on from time to time as a way to help us think about our life before God. One of the things that I love about the psalms is that they are written in first person, that they use the words I and we that this is our way of responding back to God, what He has done for us, way for us to have the words to speak to God. And so I'd like to help us look through a few psalms over the coming weeks, uh, and this week we're going to be in Psalm 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let us pray and call upon the Lord to speak to us this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we come and ask that you would be our teacher today. That as the psalmist David cried out and asked that you would teach him, that you would make him to know your ways, that you would lead him. Lord, we cry out and ask with King David that you would make us to know your ways in this time, that you would teach us and lead us and instruct us in the way we should go. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 
This is a fascinating psalm that is given to us today. If you look at the bottom of some of your Bibles, you may notice a footnote at the beginning of this, at the chapter heading. It will say, this psalm is an acrostic poem, each verse beginning with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. An acrostic is where a poem or story is told with every line beginning with a letter of the alphabet. We do this with children to help them remember things, A, B, C, D. Well, in the Hebrew, they did this oftentimes. There are many psalms that are given to us. Most famously, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. Each section begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And with this, we learn that this is the ABCs that David wants us to learn. King David wants us to know. In fact, this is a psalm that was likely committed to memory. It was a memorization psalm that we are supposed to learn of how to confess our sins, a psalm of penitence, a psalm of crying out to the Lord, that we need to learn this in our Christian lives, not just as something to meditate on, but to even memorize. Theodore Beza, one of the reformers who succeeded Calvin in Geneva, said this, This psalm presents a model for daily prayers and of the church and of every saint. So today I want to help us to see that this is the model that we should use to guide us as we think about confessing our sins, asking the Lord to intercede on our behalf. There's one thing I want else to point out to us before we dive into this psalm is the placement of Psalm 25. It comes right after Psalm 24. And you say, Pastor, that's not a very insightful observation. Well, I'd like to help you see something that's interesting about where these psalms fall together. If you look at verse 3 of Psalm 24, it asks this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Yet the very next psalm, you have a man, King David himself, confessing his sins, that his sins are great, as he says in verse 11, that his sins are from his youth. So how can we as sinners stand in the presence of God? How can we ascend this hill? I believe that this psalm presents to us, sinners though we are, the way that we can fulfill Psalm 24. And I'd like to give to us a few ways to think about this passage I could work through it linearly, but many commentators, and I think they're on to something, that this is a wisdom literature. It's a collection of things that we're supposed to see the inner connection between the different parts of this psalm. Some, many things are repeated in different places. So I'd like to draw out what those themes are for us. I'd like this, this is the structure that I'll use today. The Lord welcomes sinners. The Lord forgives sinners. The Lord instructs sinners, and the Lord restores sinners. So welcomes, forgives, instructs, and restores. The Lord welcomes sinners. The very beginning of this psalm begins in God's presence. David says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. 
David is bringing his soul right into the very presence of God. And this presents to us one of the most fundamental aspects of our lives in this world. We are answerable to God for everything that we do in this life. We must answer to him for all that goes on in our thoughts, in our hearts, and in our deeds. What hope is there for us, sinners? How can we present our souls before a holy and righteous God? What hope is there? And David teaches us that, yes, you must go right directly into the presence of God through prayer. We must present ourselves before God. We must lift up our souls to him. Lord, it is with you that we have to do. You are the one that we must answer to. We, are ha- we have our lives continually before the presence of God. The great phrase of the Reformation, Coram Deo, before his presence, before God and in his presence, is something that is echoed in this psalm. And I think R.C. Sproul, uh, many of you know who he is, a theologian, he helpfully states that to live all of life quorum Deo is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. See, the, the truth here for us boils down to this. We must either bring our souls willingly into the presence of God, or we can wait until God summons us into his presence to deal with our sins. We will all be summoned to the presence of God. We can do this now willingly, as David shows us here, or you can wait until he summons you into his presence in the end. Yet as we know, that will be a day without mercy for those who do not look to Jesus Christ. So the approach of lifting up our souls before God is the first step of integrity. It is the first step of saying, this is who I am, Lord. I am acknowledging who I am before you. Sin seeks to drag us down, to keep us in our place. It fragments us, the opposite of integrity. It ultimately will destroy us. I spoil also discusses about integrity that we end up compartmentalizing our lives, holding off sections of our lives from the presence of God. We have a religious part of our life and we have a non-religious part of our life. The area of our life where we say, I don't want God to have much to do with this. He does not need to have a say over this part of my life. Yet here, David tells us the method. I lift up my soul. In my God, in you, I trust. We are taught here to come into his presence, not to flee from the presence of God, but to come to his presence to find deliverance, to actually run to it. There's a question in our minds that I wonder if is ringing in yours as well. What is the basis that we can do this? How can we Sinners, though we are, as David acknowledges here, how can we go into the presence of God? Our sins are the very things that would banish us from his presence. The very thing that he would say, you cannot enter my presence. This is holy and you are unholy. This is pure and you are filthy. 
The reasons that we can do this is our second point this morning, because the Lord forgives sinners. David, later on in the psalm that you see on, in, in verses 16 through 18, he describes the life of a sinner in very tender a description. He says, turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. Our sins bring upon us loneliness, affliction, troubles, distress, sorrow. This is where David finds himself. I believe where many of us together find ourselves oftentimes. We find ourselves in loneliness. Our sin alienates us from others. When we fail before them, when we fail to love them as we ought to, and we know even after they have forgiven us that there is a still a work of reconciliation that must go on to restore that relationship. It takes time. And we feel that ongoing sense of loneliness. And then we feel lonely because we are acutely aware of the lack of the presence of God in our lives because of our sin. We are troubled. John Calvin states it beautifully and says, the weight and number of our trials accumulate to such an extent that they fill our whole heart, even as floodwaters bursting every barrier and extending far and wide covers a whole country. That we're troubled like under a flood from our sins. That we're afflicted. The affliction of sin is like the constant presence of a wound that will not heal. You know what this is like. You have a cut on your leg that seems to be stubborn and itches and it festers. You have a pain in your body that will not go away. This is like sin in our hearts. And it leads us ultimately to be distressed. We seek relief and we find none. And so we come to the presence of God, lifting our souls before him and cry out with the psalmist, Turn to me and be gracious to me. Earlier in this psalm, David appeals to the mercy of God. Verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. When the guilt and shame of our sin rules our hearts, David shows us the pathway. He teaches us the remedy. It is pleading for the Lord's forgiveness and grace. It is simply asking him to forgive us on the basis of who he is. He is a merciful, forgiving, loving God. But it is important to see how David pleads for God's mercy. He doesn't say, help me remember your mercy. He says, Lord, you remember your mercy. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your steadfast love. Lord, remember me. This is what sin does to our hearts. It leaves us feeling forgotten. Does the Lord care for me? Yes, I am a sinner. I have walked into my own paths of destruction. I don't see a way out of this. Where are you, Lord? We suffer and are afflicted, and the world around us becomes dark. Our hearts are distressed, and so David asks God to remember him, 
for God to remember what he's done. In essence, what David is doing here is he is pleading on behalf of God's covenant that he has made. God has promised, I will have mercy. I will show steadfast love. And he's saying, Lord, remember your covenant that you have made. This covenant with Abraham. This covenant with your people. Remember your promises. But can God ultimately forget? Can God forget us? As Christians, we know the answer to that question. No, God cannot forget us. Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, the Lord tells Israel, and he tells us today, I will not forget you. Behold, I have, you in, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And so David teaches us the pathway of confession. It is calling upon the Lord to remember who he is so that we might remember his promises, his covenant that he has made with us. But there is a second thing that David does here. He doesn't just call upon the Lord's character, on the Lord's attributes and his covenant. He also presents who he is before God openly and honestly. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David does not minimize his sin. He does not say, minimize or forgive some of my sins. He acknowledges before God that any of his sin is great before the sight of God. He says in verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Many of us have a life of youthfulness that we remember and we regret. We look back on that past and it still lingers with us. We have choices that we made as young people that we wish we never would have made. No matter how much we feel like we want it gone, it still lingers with us. But it could also mean that those are just sins that we are sinners from the time of our youth. That we realize and look back on our past and we just see a whole lot of sin. Our life is just one that is just a continual passing from sin to sin. Remember not the sins from my youth. Either way, it is that we look back on our life and we see an accumulation of sins, that it is a mountain between us and God. But David prays, remember them not. Forget them, Lord, according to your steadfast love. For your name's sake, pardon my guilt, for it is great. But the consolation, the comfort for our hearts this morning is that God forgives us for his name's sake. Say, Pastor, how is that comfort for me? How is it comfort that God forgives me for his name's sake? Is this David appealing to God in self-centeredness? 
No, this is David again appealing to God's covenant faithfulness. The very first appeal to, to the Lord, to you, O Lord, this is God's covenant name that he gave to his people of Israel. See, if God were not to forgive those who belong to his covenant, who come to faith, come to him in faith, then the glory of his name will be brought to shame. Isaiah 48 says this, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is the basis of David's appeal for forgiveness. God's glory. Lord, you have promised that you will forgive sinners who come to you and ask for forgiveness for your sins. And if you don't forgive me, you are denying yourself. And that is the hope for us today, that God has bound himself to us. He has sworn that he will forgive sinners who trust his promises. But the Lord does not leave us once we have received forgiveness at his hands. We also need to be instructed. It is one thing for us to be forgiven, but to continue back into those very sins that brought us into the situation that we were in. The Lord knows us. He knows our frame. And this is the third thing we see today, that the Lord instructs sinners. The basis of this instruction is that God is upright and good in verse 8. When we are in our sin, we often forget the goodness of God. And it's essential for us to remember that God is good. That our hearts from sin are filled with dread, anxiety, trepidation, and loathing. We want nothing less than to come into the presence of God. But here David says, no, you are good. You give. You provide. You overflow with goodness. Just as God sends his reign upon the just and the unjust, here we are called to appeal to God to teach us on the basis of his goodness. God is not like us who vacillate, who go back and forth one day and another. No, he is upright. He always does what is good. He always does what is just. And that is hope for us when we have gone astray. That God does not leave sinners to themselves, but he teaches them. He leads them. David shows how stubborn our heart is in sin because he pleads with the Lord to make him to know his ways. Our hearts are so hard that unless God acts to change our hearts, we will not turn to follow him. We will go right back to those same sins. It is a strange thing. We think that prayer is the, is the thing that changes us. In one sense, that's true, but it is not ultimately true. It is God who changes us. Make me, lead me, teach me, guide me. Lord, you must do this. 
If you do not transform my heart, then I will never learn. But the Lord is good. The Lord is good, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. So the question for us is, do we wish to learn? Do you want to learn? Sadly, so often, we do not want to learn from our sins. We want to be done with the guilt and the shame that comes to our hearts. We want to be done with the feelings that we have. But we don't want to leave those sins behind. We want to return to them. David says that God must do the work in our hearts to cause us to leave them behind. Too often we go back to them, like the Proverbs tell us, like a dog returning to, a, to its vomit, so a man returns to his folly. God must change us and not be like dogs returning back to their own vomit and sin. But God instructs sinners Not only does he instruct sinners, but lastly, after he forgives us and teaches us and instructs us, then the Lord restores us. The Lord restores us. This is where this psalm begins and where this psalm ends, is this issue of shame. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. There is a personal danger from sin. Our sin makes us liable to the judgment of God. But there's something else about the nature of our sin. It brings shame. We're not just liable to God's judgment. We are liable to the judgment of this world. See, we often think that our sin is a private issue. I can keep it hidden, keep it covered. This won't affect anybody else as long as I can deal with this myself. Now, there is a sense where, yes, some sins we don't need to go parading around. This is becoming more and more popular in our culture these days. But David's sin, whatever it was, had become a public matter. And the accusations against him were flying. They were shaming him, ostracizing him, excluding him, saying, you have no basis on which you can stand as the king of Israel before the people of God. You're a sinner. We think of when a pastor sins or a significant Christian leader falls, and the world accuses us and says, you're no good, you're no better than us. You're a bunch of sinners, just like us. There is no excuse for sin among us. But the world looks upon us and sees that if we claim to follow God's law, that any failure to keep this law somehow disproves our religion. Friends, this does not disprove Christianity when Christians fail. As heinous as the sins that King David committed in murder and adultery, it did not disprove Christianity. It did not disprove his faith in God. 
See, the law that we uphold as Christians is not the law of God by simply our obedience. We uphold the law of God through the law of faith. We uphold that the law is good, righteous, and holy by looking to Jesus Christ. By saying, I am not those things. But there is one. There is one who is righteous, who is holy, who is perfect. Who upheld this law that I need to uphold myself. That Christ is the one who is righteous for me. That despite the shame that our sin brings upon us, and they do bring shame upon us, that this honor does not come on the basis of ourselves, but upon the work of Jesus Christ. This is important for us, as people shame us when they see our sin, as we feel the shame from our own sin. How do we remove this shame? How do we ask God to remove this? How is he going to remove this shame that we are filthy in the sight of the world? God removes our shame in a surprising way. And if you want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, I will show you how God deals with our shame. Colossians 2, verses 13 and following. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with, a, with him. That's with Jesus Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How do we know that God has removed our shame? He did it publicly before the world, before the rulers and authorities of heaven and earth on the cross. The record of debt with its legal demands he set aside on the cross. Yet the next phrase says one of the most profound truths in all of Scripture. God shamed those who were shaming his people. Our ESV is, I don't believe, strong enough in the language that is present here in our New Testaments. Literally translated, this verse says, he stripped the rulers and authorities. He made them naked disgracing them in public, exhibiting them in triumph in Christ. The picture here is one of a king who has conquered its enemy, and what they would do is they would lead those conquered enemies chained through the cities naked to show their victory over them. This is what Paul is doing in this passage to show what Jesus Christ did on the cross towards those who lobby accusations against God's people. All the shame that the world may heap upon you for your sin, Jesus Christ has the final word. He has stripped them by fulfilling the law's demands. 
Yes, you, Christian, you have not lived up to the God's demands. This is true. But Jesus Christ did. Yes, you are a sinner, but Jesus Christ on the cross took those away publicly before the world. And he turns it around on them and he says, no, now you men whose mouths are full of accusations of shame are actually the ones who are full of shame. You have no accusations here, Satan. You have no power here. You have been disgraced. Your power, accusing people of failing to keep God's law, has been taken away. And Jesus Christ now leads you around the enemies of the people of God, like a king leading a triumphal procession with his enemies chained and shamed before the world. So as the psalmist says, let me not be put to shame. The glorious truth that we have today as we stand on this side of the cross, where God has now taken that shame and put it back upon his enemies and calls us to look to this cross of Jesus Christ. That there is our restoration. There is our, as the psalmist ends Psalm 25, our redemption the redemption of Israel. So today, cry out with King David. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. That is the way that you will ascend God's holy hill. Not because your hands are clean, not because you are righteous in yourself, but because you have taken refuge in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the one who has taken your shame, removed it from, from you, and placed it upon himself. And instead has covered you with his righteous, pure, white, holy garments. So Christian, lift your soul to God. Lift your soul to him. Confess your sins to him and cry out for his mercy and forgiveness and take refuge in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we confess that our sins are great before you and we are unworthy in ourselves to stand in your presence. But Lord, we run, we fly into your presence because of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is only through his work, that we can stand before you. Lord, take away the loneliness, the affliction, the sorrow, the distress of our hearts because of our sin. Remind us of your love, your mercy, and your faithfulness. Remind us of your covenant, your promise that you have made to us, that you will be our God and we will be your people. Strengthen us for this journey of life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.